Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hello. Okay, don't think, just answer. Okay. If you could play any of Bill Murray's roles from the 80s or 90s, which one would it be? Uh, Five, four, What three. about Bob? Nice. Bob Wiley. If that's true, then you're going to like this week's episode of 30 Pop. Oh, really? I won't say why. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to spoil anything for you or for anybody else, but if Bob is your answer... You're going to like this week's episode of 30 Pop. Yes, it's one of my favorite movies. I love it. I can't say that this episode necessarily has anything to do with it, but if that's your answer, you're going to like this episode. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Got it. Awesome. I can't wait to listen. I'm going to get started. Okay. Okay, see you, man. From Mill U Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 3, Episode 18, Baby Steps to the Box Office. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, May 18, 1991. Honestly, I don't even know where to start. Friends, to say there is much to cover from this week in 1991 pop culture news and nostalgia would be the understatement of, well, the last three decades. But I'll say it anyway. There is so much to cover from this week in 1991. I mentioned this last week, but let me reiterate. The next few months on this show, between the unbelievable movie premieres and the sheer volume of major album releases, will be just so much fun. So I couldn't be happier to have you sitting shotgun for this nostalgic joyride. Last week, I shared a bit of salacious gossip with you about the Oakland A's Jose Canseco having a secret, although supposedly innocent, rendezvous with Madonna on the day of her Truth or Dare documentary release, May 10th, 1991. Well, three days later, New York's Yankee Stadium was filled with the sound of fans taunting the heavy-hitting outfielder by singing her song Like a Virgin every time he came up to bat ignoring altogether his claims that Madonna was just a friend. This was just one entry in an intense and escalating relationship between Kenseiko and Yankee fans, and quite an odd contrast to the events of the Oakland A's game two days later, on May 15, 1991, against the Baltimore Orioles. That game was attended by U.S. President George H.W. Bush and his guest, Queen Elizabeth II, neither of whom, to my knowledge, sang any Madonna songs at least not in any sort of combative way. In music news this week in 1991, we had, finally, a new top album in the country. The most deserving seventh studio album from Athens, Georgia alternative rock legends, R.E.M., Out of Time. The album went four times platinum in the United States alone and has to date sold over 18 million copies worldwide off the strength of singles like Losing My Religion and Shiny Happy People.
band was fronted, of course, by the great and mysterious Michael Stipe. He was their lead vocalist, lyricist, and aesthetic director, designing most of the band's album art and directing many of their photo and music video shoots over the years. He's been listed as a major influence on some of music's most amazing fellow frontmen, including, but not limited to, Bono from U2, Tom York of Radiohead, and Nirvana's Kurt Cobain. As a matter of fact, Stipe is actually godparent alongside actress Drew Barrymore to Cobain and Courtney Love's daughter, Frances. It's hard to imagine a time when Stipe was not a pop culture icon, but it was the success of Out of Time that catapulted him to that status. He'd had tremendous success with R.E.M. for nearly a decade at this point in 1991, but this album put them, and him specifically, on a completely different level. He remains there today, a full decade after R.E.M. called it quits. With regard to their claiming the top spot on the Billboard 200 chart this week in 1991, it's worth noting it was not for lack of competition. Not only was Mariah Carey's self-titled debut still lingering near the top, Michael Bolton's Time, Love, and Tenderness was selling extremely well, as was Boys to Men's newly released Cooley High Harmony. There were also a ton of new albums released 30 years ago this week, spanning every mainstream musical genre. On May 14, 1991, each of the following critically acclaimed albums was released. De La Soul is Dead, the sophomore effort from hip-hop trio De La Soul. This was one of the first albums to ever receive the coveted 5 mic rating from hip-hop magazine The Source and is included in the Source's list of 100 Best Rap Albums and Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. The quadruple-platinum-selling sophomore album from country music star Alan Jackson, Don't Rock the Jukebox, the fourth studio album from controversial rapper Ice-T, OG Original Gangster, which received mixed reviews from critics, some calling it his best work and others essentially calling it mediocre at best. The debut album from British rock band EMF, Schubert Dip, which never remotely lived up to the massive success of its lead single, Unbelievable, which we'll discuss again in a couple of months when it finds some chart success. And the triple platinum-selling follow-up to her seven-times-platinum-selling debut, Paula Abdul's Spellbound, which we'll also get back to very soon. Suffice to say, there was a lot of good music to choose from this week in 1991, with plenty more on the way over the course of the summer. As far as our other charts go, George Strait was once again at the top of the Hot Country chart with If I Know Me, but in each of our other categories, we had new number one singles. On the Hot R&B and Hip Hop chart, the top spot went to the silky smooth Teddy Pendergrass for his song, It Should Have Been You. Should have been you. Pendergrass was a legend by every account, and an absolute trailblazer in the genre. His life and career were marked not only by his record-breaking success, becoming the first African-American artist ever to release five consecutive platinum-selling albums, but also by tragedy. In 1982, he was involved in an accident in his brand new Rolls-Royce Silver Spirit, which left him paralyzed from the chest down and nearly ended his career. Although, accident may not be exactly the right word. 
Apparently someone had tampered with the vehicle's brakes before it was delivered to Pendergrass. This just a few years after the murder of his manager and girlfriend, Taz Lang, who was shot dead on the doorstep of her Philadelphia home. A murder that remains unsolved today, but which is believed by many to be the work of the Philadelphia Black Mafia, who resented Lang's control over Pendergrass's lucrative career and was responsible for a large number of similar crimes around that time. Then, in 2008 or 9, Pendergrass was diagnosed with and treated for colon cancer, which led to the respiratory issues which ultimately claimed his life in early 2010, at the age of just 59. There have been rumors swirling for a few years now about a biopic of Pendergrass's life, with Tyrese Gibson playing the role of the singer. But as of this recording, the project has still yet to see an official announcement. At the top of the hot rap chart this week in 1991, we saw what has since become widely accepted as one of the genre's greatest songs, the LL Cool J classic, Mama Said Knock You Out. I mean, what is there to even say? I loved this song. Everybody did. I still do. It was written as a diss track in the ongoing, very public feud between LL Cool J and fellow New York rapper Kumo D. Supposedly, it was written also in response to LL's sense of his own waning relevance, as gangster rap was becoming increasingly prominent industry-wide, while his brand of more pure, old-school storytelling hip-hop was fading into oblivion. For whatever reason, this felt like a really honest new LL Cool J. One that was legitimately intimidating, demanding to be taken seriously in this new rap scene, but without pretending to be something he wasn't. He owned his pop status. He owned his success. He just gave us an honest expression of his unwillingness to quit or be forgotten or minimized or written off. And it remains so good today. Also unwilling to be forgotten 30 years ago this week was the new number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, a song that had already seen success on the Hot R&B and Hip Hop chart earlier in the year, and a song I've mentioned at least half a dozen times in the last couple months on this show. High fives, I like the way, the kissing game. It is about damn time. I keep saying how much more credit this song and this group deserved, so I'm thankful that for this one week they received it. I don't even mind that they only held the spot for one week, as the competition was pretty intense at this point in 1991, as you'll notice over the next few weeks. While this isn't my very favorite song by High Five, I do love it. And I do believe it earned this honor of being America's favorite song, even if only for a brief moment. In Hollywood 30 years ago this week, the summer blockbuster season officially got underway with a couple of new releases. One which has aged extremely well, and the other which has been all but forgotten over the last three decades. And honestly, probably rightfully so. The absolute flop that was Mannequin on the Moon. Long ago, in a faraway kingdom... Do not draw that sword unless you intend to use it, sir. A dashing prince and his lady fair ran into a few problems. A symbol of our eternal love. (laughs) You have cursed my gift! 
frozen forever until she meets a true love from another land. And that is the legend of Hauptmann Konig's enchanted peasant girl. A thousand years later, Jason Williamson started a new job. Well, lucky you. It seems we have an opening on Mr. Montrose's staff. Give me cheekbones or give me death. And found the girl of his dreams. 2.5 billion women in the world and I'm trying to score with a statue. There is definitely something wrong with me. Gesundheit. Dankeschön. You're welcome. Whoa! Whoa! Why are you running? Why am I running? Why are you moving? After a 10-century snooze... The lights are beautiful. How does it all work? Uh, well... She's got some catching up to do. It's diet soda. No calories, no sugar, no caffeine. Oh, we had something like that back home called water. The bath! Who's in the bathroom? No questions, please. We do not fall in love with empty things unless, of course, that daddies are rich. And in this case, her dad is a redwood, so I forget about it. Jason. It's not what you're thinking, Mom. He's in love with a dummy. Oh! The counter's here to preview the display. Are you sure you're supposed to be out in the daylight? Get back. <laughs> I want to see the enchanted peasant girl now. <laughs> Where is she? The enchanted peasant girl's alive. That is impossible. I have to save her, Hollywood. No one messes with Count Sprezzo. <laughs> I thought Cupid aimed for the heart. Hey! I learned this from the Marines. You were in the Marines? Yes, they were looking for a few good men, and so was I. Jason, come on! Mannequin on the move. Stranger things have happened. Where have you been all my life? Frozen. <laughs> this was a sequel, sort of, to the 1987 massive comedy hit, Mannequin. And although the plot lines are nearly indistinguishable from one another, commercially speaking, these two films were nothing alike. The original film was produced on an estimated $6 million budget and saw a most impressive return of over $42 million worldwide. For the sequel, the budget was more than doubled to $13 million, but the return? This film has to date made less than $4 million worldwide. It seems almost miraculous that either of its lead actors went on to successful careers in the immediate wake of this dud. But William Ragsdale went on to star as the lead in his own relatively successful sitcom later in 1991, Herman's Head, and Christy Swanson would take on the role of Buffy the Vampire Slayer the following year. Prior to playing this thousand-year-old enchanted peasant girl mannequin, I'd only ever known her for her role as Simone Adamley from this classic scene. Bueller? Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. Um, he's sick. My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid is going with the girl who saw Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night. I guess it's pretty serious. Thank you, Simone. No problem whatsoever. Classic. I love that movie so, so much. Mannequin on the Move, however... I might have seen that at some point in my life, but I can't be sure. I have been known, though, to enjoy a really bad movie on occasion, so it's entirely likely that I could watch and enjoy this thoroughly today. Simultaneous to this film's abysmal opening weekend, there was another new release that was just absolutely crushing it. In fact, it made three times as much on its opening weekend as Mannequin on the Move has made in its entire 30-year existence. Directed by Frank Oz, who was famous for voicing Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear, Grover, 
Bert, the Cookie Monster, and, of course, Yoda, and starring Richard Dreyfuss, Julie Haggerty, and the only ever wonderful Bill Murray. The comedy classic, What About Bob? There are two types of people in this world. Those who like Neil Diamond and those who don't. What is the crisis, Bob? My ex-wife loves him. Just when patient Bob Wiley was making progress. Dr. Marvin, you can help me. Dr. Leo Marvin was making other plans. As of this afternoon, I'm taking my family on vacation until Labor Day. But Leo's vacation... Dr. Marvin! ...is about to become... Oh my. Dr. Marvin! ...Bob's therapy. Oh, I really appreciate this. I do not see patients on vacation, ever. We just got to figure out a way to work around your schedule. Two to four, three to five, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I don't want any of you letting Bob into this house. He's a sweet guy. Could we invite Bob over for dinner? Would you like some more chicken, Bob? Mmm. Mmm. Mmm, hey, this is so scrumptious. Mmm. Mmm. <laughs> Will you stop that, please? Now, while Bob is getting better. Roses are red, violets are blue, I'm a schizophrenic. And so am I. <laughs> Leo is taking a turn for the worse. You're angry. No, I don't get angry. <laughs> You're upset. Relax, Leo. Take a vacation. Come on, vacation! Touchstone Pictures presents Bill Murray. Hello, I'm Bob. Would you knock me out, please? And Richard Dreyfus. Don't you understand this? is crazy in a totally insane comedy you've turned a perfectly peaceful house into an insane asylum get out why'd you need to kick bob out of the house he's not gone that's the whole point he's never gone is this some radical new therapy you see what about bob what are you doing with the rifle death therapy bob it's a guaranteed cure <laughs> What an amazing movie. This is Bill Murray at his best, which is saying something, as the man is a comedic and cinematic icon. However, he was apparently only at his best on screen. Off screen, by all accounts, this movie was kind of a nightmare to make, largely because of Bill Murray. He was combative with producers and did not get along with his co-star Richard Dreyfuss. They've both stated on the record multiple times over the years how much they did not get along on the set of this movie. The tension between them wound up serving the greater narrative of the film, but it certainly could have gone differently. In fact, these two were almost not cast in the film at all. Among those considered for the role of Bob Wiley was Robin Williams, who ultimately had to turn the part down as he had just wrapped production on The Fisher King. Interestingly, he would star later in the year alongside young Charlie Corsmo, who played the role of Sigmund Siggy Marvin in the film. And what remains one of the most nostalgic movies of 1991 for me, Hook. I've said before, and I will likely say again, I cannot wait to cover that movie. We talked about Cosmo a bit last year when he played the role of the kid in Dick Tracy. Each of these roles reminds me how wildly talented he was. I wish he'd stayed in the business. He only ever did two more movies after Hook. Can't Hardly Wait in 1998 and a film called Chain for Life in 2019. Instead, today he spends his time as a professor of corporate law and corporate finance at a prestigious law school in Cleveland, Ohio. Well done, Charlie. Other actors considered for the role of Bob Wiley were Eddie Murphy and Steve Martin. Martin, interestingly, was also considered for the role of Dr. Leo Marvin, and is one of probably very few actors who could have just as convincingly pulled off either role. 
The original first choice for Dr. Marvin was Captain Picard and Professor Xavier himself, Patrick Stewart. Other options included Chevy Chase, James Kahn, and Kevin Kline. I love the choice of Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfuss, even if they hated each other. But to be honest, I can imagine loving any combination of the actors I just listed in these roles. Patrick Stewart and Eddie Murphy? Yes, please. Steve Martin and Steve Martin? Count me in. This movie is great in part because of who was cast, but it's also great regardless of who was cast. At least from the options that were in the running. I'm curious, though. If this was being made today and Bill Murray was not available... Who would you cast as Bob Wiley and Dr. Leo Marvin? Let me know by visiting 30pop.com and clicking on the answering machine link. I'd really love to hear who you'd put in those roles today. For now, though, dear retro-loving friends, we're going to call it a wrap until next week when, spoiler alert, we'll get to look back on some hot fires, imaginary friends, and a controversial crime spree. You won't want to miss it. Until then, ask yourself, what if all these fantasies come flailing around? Now I've said too much. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. <laughs>